Welcome to Strangely's Reading of Moby Dick. For an explanation of this project and its rationale, please see the Strangely's Moby Dick and Introduction episode of this podcast. Trigger Warning Moby Dick, like many of us, was created prior to 2019. As such, it may contain language, ideas, and situations which might not be up to the standards of the modern reader. Furthermore, it's about muscular semen hunting creatures that are remarkably phallic in shape. It's gonna get sweaty. Strangely presents an unabridged audiobook of Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Part 3. Chapter 12. Biographical. Queequeg was a native of Rokovoko, an island far away to the west and south. It is not down in any map. True places never are. When a new-hatched savage running about his native woodlands in a grass clout, followed by the nibbling goats as if he were a green sapling, even then, in Queequeg's ambitious soul, lurked a strong desire to see something more of Christendom than a specimen whaler or two. His father was a high chief, a king, his uncle a high priest, and on the maternal side he boasted aunts who were the wives of unconquerable warriors. There was an excellent blood in his veins, royal stuff, though sadly vitiated, I fear, by the cannibal propensity he nourished in his untutored youth. A Sag Harbor ship visited his father's bay, and Queequeg sought a passage to Christian lands. But the ship, having her full complement of seamen, spurned his suit, and not all the king his father's influence could prevail. But Queequeg vowed a vow. Alone in his canoe, he paddled off to a distant strait where he knew the ship must pass through when she quitted the island. On one side was a coral reef, and on the other a low tongue of land covered with mangrove thickets that grew out into the water. Hiding his canoe, still afloat among the, these thickets with his prow seaward, he sat down in the stern, paddle low in hand, and when the ship was gliding by, like a flash he darted out, gained her side with one backward dash of his foot, capsized and sank his canoe, climbed up the chains, throwing himself at full length upon the deck, grappled a ring bolt there, and swore not to let it go, though hacked to pieces. In vain, the captain threatened to throw him overboard, suspended a cutlass over his naked wrists. Queequeg was the son of a king, and Queequeg budged not. Struck by his desperate dauntlessness and his wild desire to visit Christendom, the captain at last relented and told him that he might make himself at home. But this fine young savage, this sea prince of Wales, never saw the captain's cabin. They put him down among the sailors and made a whaleman of him. But, like Tsar Peter, content to toil in the shipyards of foreign cities, Queequeg disdained no seeming ignominy. If thereby he might happily gain the power of enlightening his untutored countrymen. For, at bottom, so he told me, he was actuated by a profound desire to learn among the Christians, the arts whereby to make his people still happier than they were, and more than that, still better than they were. But, alas... The practices of whalemen soon convinced him that even Christians could be both miserable and wicked, infinitely more so than all his father's heathens. Arrived at last in Old Sag Harbor and seeing what the sailors did there, and then going on to Nantucket and seeing how they spent their wages in that place also, poor Queequeg gave it up for lost, thought he, 
It's a wicked world in all meridians. I'll die a pagan. And thus, an old idolater at heart, he yet lived among these Christians, wore their clothes, and tried to talk their gibberish. Hence the queer ways about him, though now some time from home. By hints, I asked him whether he did not propose going back and having a coronation, since he might now consider his father dead and gone, he being very old and feeble at the last accounts. He answered no, not yet, and added that he was fearful Christianity, or rather Christians, had unfitted him for ascending the pure and undefiled throne of thirty pagan kings before him. But by and by, he said, he would return, as soon as he felt himself baptized again, for nonce, however, he proposed to sail about, and sow his wild oats in all four oceans. They had made a harpooner of him, and that barbed iron was in lieu of a scepter now. I asked him what might be his immediate purpose, touching his future movements. He answered, to go to sea again, in his old vocation. Upon this, I told him that whaling was my own design, and informed him of my intention to sail out of Nantucket, as being the most promising port for an adventurous whaleman to embark from. He at once resolved to accompany me to that island, ship aboard the same vessel, get into the same watch, the same boat, the same mess with me, in short, to share my every hap, with both my hands in his, boldly dip into the potluck of both worlds. To all this I joyously assented, for besides the affection I now felt for Queequeg, he was an experienced harpooner, and as such could not fail to be of great usefulness to one who, like me, was wholly ignorant of the mysteries of whaling, though well acquainted with the sea, as known to merchant seamen. His story being ended with his pipe's last dying puff, Queequeg embraced me pressed his forehead against mine, and blowing out the light, we rolled over from each other, this way and that, and very soon were sleeping. Chapter 13. Wheelbarrow. Next morning, Monday, after disposing of the embalmed head to a barber, for a block, I settled my own and comrade's bill, using, however, my comrade's money. The grinning landlord, as well the boarders, seemed amazingly tickled at the sudden friendship which had sprung up between me and Queequeg, especially as Peter Coffin's cock-and-bull stories about him had previously so much alarmed me concerning the very person whom I now companioned with. We borrowed a wheelbarrow, and, embarking our things, including my own poor carpet bag and Queequeg's canvas sack and hammock, away we went down to The Moss the little Nantucket packet schooner moored at the wharf. As we were going along, the people stared, not at Queequeg so much, for they were used to seeing cannibals like him in the streets, but at seeing him and me upon such confidential terms. But we heeded them not, going along wheeling the barrow by turns, and Queequeg now and then stopping to adjust the sheath on his harpoon barbs. I asked him why he carried such a troublesome thing with him ashore, and whether all whaling ships did not find their own harpoons. To this, in substance, he replied, that though what I hinted was true enough, yet he had a particular affection for his own harpoon, because it was of assured stuff, well tried in many a mortal combat, and deeply intimate with the hearts of whales. In short, like many inland reapers and mowers who go into the farmer's meadows armed with their own scythes, though in no wise obliged to furnish them, even so, 
Queequeg, for his own private reasons, preferred his own harpoon. Shifting the barrow from my hand to his, he told me a funny story about the first wheelbarrow he had ever seen. It was in Sag Harbor. The owners of his ship, it seems, had lent him one, in which to carry his heavy chest to his boarding house. Not to seem ignorant about the thing, though in truth he was entirely so, concerning the precise way in which to manage the barrow, Queequeg puts his chest upon it, lashes it fast, and then shoulders the barrow and marches up the wharf. <laughs> Why, said I, Queequeg, you might have known better than that, one would think. Didn't people laugh? Upon this, he told me another story. The people of his island of Rokovoko, it seems, at their wedding feasts, express the fragrant water of young coconuts into a large stained calabash like a punch bowl, and this punch bowl always forms the great central ornament on the braided mat where the feast is held. Now a certain grand merchant ship once touched at Rokovoko, and its commander, from all accounts a very stately, punctilious gentleman, at least for a sea captain, this commander was invited to the wedding feast of Queequeg's sister a pretty young princess just turned ten. Well, when all the wedding guests were assembled at the bride's bamboo cottage, this captain marches in and, being assigned the post of honor, placed himself over against the punch bowl and between the high priest and his majesty the king, Queequeg's father. Grace being said, for those people have grace as well as we, Though Queequeg told me that unlike us, who at such times look downwards to our platters, they, on the contrary, copying the ducks, glance upwards to the great giver of all feasts. Grace, I say, being said, the high priest opens the banquet by the immemorial ceremony of the island, that is, dipping his consecrated and consecrating fingers into the bowl before the blessing beverage circulates. Seeing himself placed next to the priest, and noting the ceremony, and thinking himself, being the captain of a ship, as having plain precedence over a mere island king, especially in the king's own house, the captain coolly proceeds to wash his hands in the punch bowl, taking it, I suppose, for a huge finger glass. Now, said Queequeg, what do you think now? Didn't our people laugh? At last, passage paid and luggage safe, we stood on board the schooner. Hoisting sail, it glided down the Akushnet River. On one side, New Bedford rose in terraces of streets, their ice-covered trees all glittering in the clear, cold air. Huge hills and mountains of casks on casks were piled upon her wharves, and side by side the world-wandering whale-ships lay silent and safely moored at last. While from others came a sound of carpenters and coopers with blended noises of fires and forges to melt the pitch, all betokening that, that new cruises were on the start, that one most perilous and long voyage ended only begins a second, and a second ended only begins a third, and so on, forever and for a. Such is the endlessness, yea, the intolerableness of all earthly effort. Gaining the open water, the bracing breeze waxed fresh, the little moss tossed the quick foam from her bows as a young colt his snortings. How I suffered that tartar air! How I spurned that turnpike earth! That common highway all over dented with the marks of slavish heels and hooves, and turned me to admire the magnanimity of the sea, which will permit no records. At the same foam fountain, Queequeg seemed to drink and reel with me. His dusky nostrils swelled apart. He showed his filed and pointed teeth. On, on we flew, and our offing gained. The moss did homage to the blast. 
ducked and dived her bows as a slave before the sultan. Sideways leaning, we sideways darted, every rope yarn tingling like a wire, the two tall masts buckling like Indian canes in land tornadoes. So full of this reeling scene we were as we stood by the plunging bowsprit that for some time we did not notice the jeering glances of the passengers, a lubber-like assembly who marveled that two fellow beings should be so companionable as though a white man were anything more dignified than a whitewashed negro. But there were some boobies and bumpkins there who, by their intense greenness, must have come from the heart and center of all verdure. Queequeg caught one of these young saplings, mimicking him behind his back. I thought the bumpkin's hour of doom was come. Dropping his harpoon, the brawny savage caught him in his arms and by an almost miraculous dexterity and strength sent him high up bodily into the air. Then slightly tapping his stern in mid-somerset, the fellow landed with bursting lungs upon his feet while Queequeg, turning his back upon him, lighted his tomahawk pipe and passed it to me for a puff. Captain, Captain! yelled the bumpkin, running towards that officer. Captain, Captain, here's the devil! Hello, you, sir, cried the captain, a gaunt rib of the sea, stalking up to Queequeg. What in thunder do you mean by that? Don't you know you might have killed that chap? What him say? said Queequeg, as he mildly turned to me. He say, said I, that you came near Killy, that man there. Pointing to the still shivering greenhorn, Killy, cried Queequeg, twisting his tattooed face into an unearthly expression of disdain. Ah, him bevy smally fishy, Queequeg no killy, so smally fishy, Queequeg killy big whale. Look you, roared the captain, I'll kill e you, you cannibal, if you try any more of your tricks around here, so mind your eye. But it so happened just then that it was high time for the captain to mind his own eye. The prodigious strain upon the mainsail had parted the weather sheet, and the tremendous boom was now flying from side to side, completely sweeping the entire after part of the deck. The poor fellow whom Queequeg had handled so roughly was swept overboard. All hands were in a panic, and to attempt snatching at the boom to stay it seemed madness. It flew from right to left and back again, almost in one ticking of a watch, and every instant seemed on the point of snapping into splinters. Nothing was done, and nothing seemed capable of being done. Those on deck rushed towards the bows and stood eyeing the boom as if it were the lower jaw of an exasperated whale. In the midst of his consternation, Queequeg dropped deftly to his knees and, crawling upon the path of the boom, whipped hold of a rope, secured one end to the bulwarks, and then flinging the other like a lasso, caught it round the boom as it swept over his head. At the next jerk of the spar was that way trapped, and all was safe. The schooner was run into the wind, and while the hands were clearing away the stern boat, Queequeg stripped to the waist, darted from the side with a long, living arc of a leap. For three minutes or more, he was seen swimming like a dog, throwing his long arms straight out before him and by turns revealing his brawny shoulders through the freezing foam. I looked at the grand and glorious fellow, but saw no one to be saved. The greenhorn had gone down. Shooting himself perpendicularly from the water, Queequeg now took an instant's glance around him and, seeming to see just how matters were, dived down and disappeared. A few minutes more, and he rose again, one arm still striking out, and with the other dragging a lifeless form. The boat soon picked them up. The poor bumpkin was restored. All hands voted Queequeg a noble trump. The captain begged his pardon. 
From that hour, I clove to Queequeg like a barnacle, yea, till poor Queequeg took his last long dive. Was there ever such unconsciousness? He did not seem to think that he at all deserved a medal from the humane and magnanimous societies. He only asked for water, fresh water, something to wipe the brine off. That done, he put on dry clothes, lighted his pipe, and leaned against the bulwarks, and mildly eyeing those around him, seemed to be saying to himself, It's a mutual, joint-stock world in all meridians. We cannibals must help these Christians. Chapter 14. Nantucket. Nothing more happened on the passage worthy of the mentioning, so... After a fine run, we safely arrived in Nantucket. Nantucket! Take out your map and look at it. See what a real corner of the world it occupies, how it stands there, away offshore, more lonely than the Eddystone Lighthouse. Look at it! A mere hillock, an elbow of sand, all beach without a background. There is more sand there than you would use in 20 years as a substitute for blotting paper. Some gamesome whites will tell you that they have to plant weeds there. They don't grow naturally. That they have to send beyond seas for a spile to stop a leak in an oil cask. That pieces of wood in Nantucket are carried about like bits of the true cross in Rome. That people there plant toadstools before their houses to get under the shade in summertime. That one blade of grass makes an oasis. Three blades in a day's walk a prairie. That they wear quicksand shoes, something like Laplander snowshoes. That they are all so shut up, belted about, every way enclosed, surrounded, and made an utter island of by the ocean. That to their very chairs and tables, small clams will sometimes be found adhering as to the backs of sea turtles. But these extravaganzas only show that Nantucket is no Illinois. Look now at that wondrous traditional story of how this island was settled by the red men. Thus goes the legend. In olden times, an eagle swooped down upon the New England coast and carried off an infant Indian in his talons. With loud lament, the parents saw their child born out of sight over the wide waters. They resolved to follow in the same direction. Setting out in their canoes, after a perilous passage, they discovered the island, and there they found an empty ivory casket, the poor little Indian's skeleton. What wonder, then, that these Nantucketers, born on a beach, should take the sea for their livelihood. They first caught crabs and quahogs in the sand. Grown bolder, they waded out with nets for mackerel. More experienced, they pushed off in boats and captured cod, and at last, launching a great navy of ships on the sea, explored this watery world. Put an incessant belt of circumnavigations round it, peeped in at Bering Straits, and in all seasons and all oceans declared everlasting war with the mightiest animated mass that has survived the flood, most mountainous and most monstrous, that Himalayan sea salt mastodon clothed with such portentousness of unconscious power that his very panics are more to be dreaded than his most fearless and malicious assaults. And thus have these naked Nantucketers, these sea hermits, issuing from their anthill in the sea, overrun and conquered the watery world like so many Alexanders, parceling out among them the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian Oceans as the three pirate powers did Poland. 
Let America add Mexico to Texas and pile Cuba upon Canada. Let the English overswarm all India and hang out their blazing banner from the sun. Two-thirds of this terraqueous globe are the Nantucketers. For the sea is his. He owns it. As emperors own empires, other seamen having but a right of way through it. Merchant ships are but extension bridges, armed ones but floating forts. Even pirates and privateers, though following the sea as highwaymen the road, they but plunder other ships, other fragments of the land like themselves. Without seeking to draw their living from the bottomless deep itself, the Nantucketer. He alone resides and riots on the sea. He alone, in Bible language, goes down to it in ships, to and fro, plowing it as his own special plantation. There is his home. There lies his business, which a Noah's flood would not interrupt, though it overwhelmed all the millions in China. He lives on the sea as prairie cocks in the prairie. He hides among the waters. He climbs them as chamois hunters climb the Alps. For years he knows not the land, so that when he comes to it at last, it smells like another world, more strangely than the moon would to an earthsman. With the landless gull that at sunset folds her wings and is rocked to sleep between billows, so at nightfall the Nantucketer, out of sight of land, furls his sails and lays him to his rest, while under his very pillow rush herds of walruses and whales. Chapter 15. Chowder. It was quite late in the evening when the little moss came snugly to anchor, and Queequeg and I went ashore, so we could attend to no business that day, at least none but a supper and a bed. The landlord of the Spouter Inn had recommended us to his cousin, Hosea Hussey, of the Tripots, whom he asserted to be the proprietor of one of the best-kept hotels in all Nantucket, and, moreover, he had assured us that Cousin Hosea, as he called him, was famous for his chowders. In short, he plainly hinted that we could not possibly do better than to try potluck at the tripots. But the directions he had given us about keeping a yellow warehouse on our starboard hand till we opened a white church to the larboard, and then keeping that on the larboard hand till we made a corner three points to the starboard, and that done, then asked the first man we met where the place was. These crooked directions of his very much puzzled us at first, especially as, at the outset, Queequeg insisted that the yellow warehouse, our first point of departure, must be left on the larboard hand, whereas... I had understood Peter Coffin to say it was on the starboard. However, by dint of beating about a little in the dark and now and then knocking up a peaceable inhabitant to inquire the way, we at last came to something which there was no mistaking. Two enormous wooden pots, painted black and suspended by ass's ears, swung from the cross trees of an old topmast, planted in front of an old doorway. The horns of the cross trees were sawed off on either side so that this old topmast looked not a little like a gallows. Perhaps I was oversensitive to such impressions at the time, but I could not help staring at this gallows with a vague misgiving. A sort of crick was in my neck as I gazed up at the two remaining horns. Yes, two of them. One for Queequeg and one for me. It's ominous, thinks I. 
a coffin for my innkeeper upon landing in my first whaling port, tombstones staring at me in the whaleman's chapel, and here, a gallows. And a pair of prodigious black pots, too, are these last throwing out oblique hints touching Tophet. I was called from these reflections by the sight of a freckled woman with yellow hair and a yellow gown standing in the porch of the inn, under a dull red lamp swinging there that looked much like an injured eye and carrying on a brisk scolding with a man in a purple woolen shirt. Get along with ye, she said to the man, or I'll be combing ye. Come on, Queequeg, said I. All right, there's Mrs. Hussey. And so it turned out, Mr. Hosea Hussey being from home, but leaving Mrs. Hussey entirely competent to attend to all his affairs. Upon making known our desires for a supper and a bed, Mrs. Hussey, postponing further scolding for the present, ushered us into a little room, and seating us at a table spread with the relics of a recently concluded repast, turned round to us and said, Clam or cod? What's that about cods, ma'am? said I, with much politeness. Clam or cod, she repeated. A clam for supper? A cold clam? Is that what you mean, Mrs. Hussey? Says I. But that's a rather cold and clammy reception in the winter time, Ain't it, Mrs. Hussey? But being in a great hurry to resume scolding the man in the purple shirt, who was waiting for it in the entry and seeming to hear nothing but the word clam, Mrs. Hussey hurried towards an open door leading to the kitchen and bawling out, Clam for two! Disappeared. Queequeg, said I, do you think we can make out a supper for us both on one clam? However, a warm savory steam from the kitchen served to belie the apparently cheerless prospect before us. But when that smoking chowder came in, the mystery was delightfully explained. Oh, sweet friends, hearken to me. It was made of small, juicy clams, scarcely bigger than hazelnuts, mixed with pounded ship biscuit and salted pork cut up into little flakes, the whole enriched with butter and plentifully seasoned with pepper and salt. Our appetites being sharpened by the frosty voyage, and, in particular, Queequeg seeing his favorite fishing food before him, and the chowder being surpassingly excellent, we dispatched it with great expedition. When leaning back a moment and bethinking me of Mrs. Hussey's claim and cod announcement, I thought I would try a little experiment. Stepping to the kitchen door, I uttered the word COD with great emphasis and resumed my seat. In a few moments, the savory steam came forth again, but with a different flavor, and in good time, the fine cod chowder was placed before us. We resumed business, and while plying our spoons in the bowl, thinks I to myself, I wonder now if this here has any effect on the head. What's that stupefying saying about chowder-headed people? But look, Queequeg, ain't that a live eel in your bowl? Where's your harpoon? Fishiest of all fishy places was the tripods, which well deserved its name, for the pots there were always boiling chowders. Chowder for breakfast and chowder for dinner and chowder for supper till you began to look for fish bones coming through your clothes. The area before the house was paved with clamshells. Mrs. Hussey wore a polished necklace of codfish vertebrae, and Hosea Hussey had his account books bound in superior old sharkskin. There was a fishy flavor to the milk, too, which I could not at all account for, till one morning, happening to take a stroll along the beach among some fishermen's boats, I saw Hosea's brindled cow feeding on fish remnants, and marching along the sand with each foot in a cod's decapitated head looking very slipshod, I assure ye. 
Supper concluded, we received a lamp and directions from Mrs. Hussey concerning the nearest way to bed. But, as Queequeg was about to precede me up the stairs, the lady reached forth her arm and demanded his harpoon. She allowed no harpoon in her chambers. Why not, said I. Every true whaleman sleeps with his harpoon. But why not? Because it's dangerous, says she. Ever since young Stiggs come in from that unfortunate voyage of his, when he was gone four years and a half with only three barrels of ile, was found dead in my first floor bock with his harpoon in his side, ever since then I allow no boarders to take such dangerous weapons up to their rooms at night. So, Mr. Queequeg, for she had learned his name, I will take just this here iron and keep it for you till morning, but your chowder, clam or cod tomorrow for breakfast, men. Both, says I. And let's have a couple of smoked herring by way of variety. Chapter 16 The Ship In bed we concocted our plans for the morrow. But to my surprise, and no small concern, Queequeg now gave me to understand that he had been diligently consulting Yojo, the name of his little black god, and Yojo told him two or three times over, and strongly insisting upon it every way, that instead of our going together among the whaling fleet in harbor and in concert selecting our craft, instead of this, I say, Yojo earnestly enjoined that the selection of the ship should rest wholly with me, inasmuch as Yojo proposed befriending us, and in order to do so had already pitched upon a vessel, which, if left to myself, I, Ishmael, should infallibly light upon, for all the world as though it had turned out by chance, and in that vessel I must immediately ship myself for the present, irrespective of Queequeg. I have forgotten to mention that in many things Queequeg placed great confidence in the excellence of Yojo's judgment and surprising forecast of things, and cherished Yojo with considerable esteem, as a rather good sort of god who perhaps meant well enough upon the whole, but in all cases did not succeed in his benevolent designs. Now, this plan of Queequeg's, or rather Yojo's, touching the selection of our craft, I did not like that plan at all. I had not a little relied upon Queequeg's sagacity to point out the whaler best fitted to carry us and our fortunes securely. But as all my remonstrances produced no effect upon Queequeg, I was obliged to acquiesce, and accordingly prepared to set about this business with a determined rushing sort of energy and vigor that should quickly settle that trifling little affair. Next morning early, leaving Queequeg shut up with Yojo in our little bedroom, for it seemed that it was some sort of Lent or Ramadan or day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer with Queequeg and Yojo that day. How it was, I could never find out, for though I applied myself to it several times, I could never master his liturgies and 39 articles. Leaving Queequeg then, fasting on his tomahawk pipe and Yojo warming himself at his sacrificial fire of shavings, I sallied out among the shipping. After much prolonged sauntering and many random inquiries, I learnt that there were three ships up for three years' voyages. The Devil Dam, the Titbit, and the Pequod. Devil Dam? I do not know the origin of. Titbit is obvious. Pequod, you will no doubt remember, was the name of a celebrated tribe of Massachusetts Indians now extinct as the ancient Medes. I peered and pried about the Devil Dam, from her hopped over to the Titbit, and finally going on board the Pequod, looked around her for a moment and then decided that this was the very ship for us. 
You may have seen many a quaint craft in your day, for aught I know, square-toed luggers, mountainous Japanese junks, butterbox galliots, and whatnot, but take my word for it, you never saw such a rare old craft as this same rare old Pequod. She was a ship of the old school, rather small, if anything, with an old-fashioned claw-footed look about her. Long seasoned and weather-stained in the typhoons and calms of all four oceans, her old hull's complexion was darkened like a French grenadier's who has alike fought in Egypt and Siberia. Her venerable bows looked bearded. Her masts, cut somewhere on the coast of Japan where her original ones were lost overboard in a gale, her masts stood stiffly up like the spines of three old kings of Cologne. Her ancient decks were worn and wrinkled like the pilgrim-worshipped flagstone in Canterbury Cathedral where Becket bled. But to all these her old antiquities were added new and marvelous features pertaining to the wild business that for more than half a century she had followed. Old Captain Peleg, many years her chief mate before he commanded another vessel of his own, and now a retired seaman and one of the principal owners of the Pequod, this old Peleg, during the term of his chief mateship, had built upon her original grotesqueness and inlaid it all over with a quaintness both of material and device, unmatched by anything except it be Thorkill Hake's carved buckler or bedstead. She was apparelled like any barbaric Ethiopian emperor, his neck heavy with pendants of polished ivory. She was a thing of trophies, a cannibal of a craft, tricking herself forth in the shaped bones of her enemies. All round her, unparalleled open bulwarks were garnished with one continuous jaw, with the long, sharp teeth of a sperm whale, inserted there for pins to fasten her old hempen thews and tendons on. Those thews ran not through base blocks of landwood, but deftly traveled over sheaves of sea ivory. Scorning a turnstile wheel at her revered helm, she sported there a tiller, and that tiller was in one mass, curiously carved from the long, narrow jaw of her hereditary foe. The helmsman who steered by that tiller in a tempest felt like a tartar, where he holds back his fiery steed by clutching his jaw, a noble craft, but somehow a most melancholy. All noble things are touched with that. Now when I looked about the quarter-deck, for someone having authority in order to propose myself as a candidate for the voyage, at first I saw nobody. But I could not well overlook a strange sort of tent, or rather wigwam, pitched a little behind the main mast. It seemed only a temporary erection used in port. It was of a conical shape, some ten feet high, consisting of the long, huge slabs of limber black bone taken from the middle and highest part of the jaws of the right whale. Planted with their broad ends on the deck, a circle of these slabs laced together, mutually sloped towards each other, and at the apex unified in a tufted point, where the loose hairy fibers waved to and fro like the top knot on some old Potawatomi sachem's head. A triangular opening faced towards the bows of the ship so that the insider commanded a complete view forward. And half concealed in this queer tenement, I at length found one who by his aspect seemed to have authority, and who, it being noon and the ship's work suspended, was now enjoying respite from the burden of command. He was seated on an old-fashioned oaken chair, wriggling all over with curious carving, and the bottom of which was formed of a stout interlacing of the same elastic stuff of which the wigwam was constructed. 
There was nothing so very particular, perhaps, about the appearance of the elderly man I saw. He was brown and brawny, like most old seamen, and heavily rolled up in blue pilot cloth, cut in the Quaker style. Only there was a fine and almost microscopic network of the minutest wrinkles interlacing around his eyes, which must have arisen from his continual sailings in many hard gales and always looking to windward, for this causes the muscles about the eyes to become pursed together. Such eye wrinkles are very effectual in a scowl. "'Is this the captain of the Pequod?' said I, advancing to the door of the tent. "'Supposing it to be the captain of the Pequod, what dost thou want of him?' he demanded. "'I was thinking of shipping.' "'Thou wast, wast thou. I see that thou art no Nantucketer. Ever been in a stove-boat?' "'No, sir, I never have.' "'Dost know nothing at all about whaling, I dare say, eh?' Nothing, sir, but I have no doubt I shall soon learn. I've been several voyages in the merchant service, and I think that merchant service be damned. Talk not that lingo to me. Dost see that leg? I'll take that leg away from thy stern if thou talkest of the merchant service to me again. Merchant service, indeed. I suppose now you feel considerable proud of having served in those merchant ships. But flukes, man, what makes thee want to go whaling, eh? It looks a little suspicious, don't it? Eh? Hast not been a pirate, hast thou? Dost not rob thy last captain, didst thou? Dost not think of murdering the officers when thou gettest to sea? I protested my innocence that th of these things. I saw that under the mask of these half-humorous innuendos, this old seaman, as an insulated Quakerish Nantucketer, was full of his insular prejudices and rather distrustful of all aliens, unless they hailed from Cape Cod or the Vineyard. But what takes thee a-wailing? I want to know that before I think of shipping ye. Well, sir, I want to see what whaling is. I want to see the world. Want to see what whaling is, eh? Have you clapped eye on Captain Ahab? Who is Captain Ahab, sir? Aye, aye, I thought so. Captain Ahab is the captain of the ship. I'm mistaken, then. I thought I was speaking to the captain himself. Thou art speaking to Captain Peleg. That's who ye are speaking to, young man. It belongs to me and Captain Bildad to see the Pequod fitted out for the voyage and supplied with all her needs, including crew. We are part owners and agents, but as I was going to say, if thou wantest to know what whaling is, as thou tellest ye do, I can put ye in a way of finding it out before ye bind yourself to it, past back and out. Clap eye on Captain Ahab, young man, and thou wilt find he has only one leg. What do you mean, sir? Was the other one lost by a whale? Lost by a whale! Young man, come nearer to me. It was devoured, chewed up crunched by the monstrousest parmacity that ever shipped a boat. <laughs> I was a little alarmed by his energy, perhaps also a little touched at the hearty grief in his concluding exclamation, but said as calmly as I could, What you say is no doubt true enough, sir, but how could I know there was any particular ferocity in that particular whale, though, indeed, I might have inferred as much from the simple fact of the accident? Look ye now, young man, thy lungs are a sort of soft, do you see? Thou dost not talk shark a bit. Sure. You've been to sea before now. Sure of that? Sir, said I, I thought I told you I had been four voyages in the merchant. Hard down out of that! 
Mind what I said about the merchant service. Don't aggravate me. I won't have it. But let us understand each other. I have given thee a hint about what whaling is. Do you feel inclined for it? I do, sir. Very good. Now, art thou the man to pitch a harpoon down a live whale's throat and then jump after it? Answer, quick! I, I am, sir. If I should be positively indispensable to do so, not to be got rid of, that is, which I don't take to be the fact. Good again. Now then, thou not only wantest to go a-whaling, but to find out by experience what whaling is, but ye also want to go in order to see the world. Was not that what ye said? I thought so. Well then, just step forward there and take a peep over the weather bow and see, and then back to me and tell me what you see there. For a moment I stood a little puzzled by this curious request, not knowing exactly how to take it, whether humorously or in earnest, but concentrating all his crow's feet into one scowl, Captain Peleg started me on the errand. Going forward and glancing over the weather bow, I perceived that the ship swinging to her anchor with the flood tide was now obliquely pointing towards the open ocean. The prospect was unlimited but exceedingly monotonous and forbidding, not the slightest variety that I could see. Well, what's the report? said Peleg when I came back. What do you see? Not much, I replied. Nothing but water. Considerable horizon, though, and there's a squall coming up, I think. Well, what dost thou think of seeing the world? Do you wish to go round Cape Horn to see any more of it? <laughs> Can't you see the world where you stand? I was a little staggered, but go a-whaling I must, and I would, and the Pequod was as good a ship as any, I thought the best, and all this I now repeated to Peleg. Seeing me so determined, he expressed his willingness to ship me. And thou mayest as well sign the papers right off, he added. Come along with ye. And so saying, he led the way below deck into the cabin. Seated on the transom was what seemed to me a most uncommon and surprising figure. It turned out to be Captain Bildad, who, along with Captain Peleg, was one of the largest owners of the vessel, the other shares, as is sometimes the case in these ports, being held by a crowd of old annuitants, widows, fatherless children, and chancery wards, each owning about the value of a timber head or a foot of plank or a nail or two in the ship. People in Nantucket invest their money in whaling vessels, the same way you do yours in approved state stocks, bringing in good interest. Now, Bildad, like Peleg, and indeed many other Nantucketers, was a Quaker, the island having been originally settled by that sect, and to this day its inhabitants in general retain an uncommon measure of the peculiarities of the Quaker, only variously and anom anomalously modified by things altogether alien and heterogeneous. For some of these same Quakers are the most sanguinary of all sailors and whale hunters. They are fighting Quakers. They are Quakers with a vengeance. <laughs> so that there are instances among them of men who, named with scripture names, a singularly common fashion on the island, and in childhood naturally imbibing the stately dramatic thee and thou of the Quaker idiom, still from the audacious, daring, and boundless adventure of their subsequent lives, strangely blend with these unoutgrown peculiarities a thousand bold dashes of character not unworthy a Scandinavian sea king or a poetical pagan Roman.' 
And when these things unite in a man of greatly superior natural force, with a globular brain and a ponderous heart, who also, by the stillness and seclusion of many long night watches in the remotest waters, and beneath constellations never seen here at the north, been led to think untraditionally and independently, receiving all nature's sweet or savage impressions fresh from her own virgin voluntary and confiding breast, and thereby chiefly, but with some help from accidental advantages, to learn a bold and nervous lofty language, that man makes one in a whole nation's census, a mighty pageant creature, formed for noble tragedies." Nor will it at all detract from him, dramatically regarded, if either by birth or other circumstances he have what seems half-willful overruling morbidness at the bottom of his nature. For all men tragically great are made so through a certain morbidness. Be sure of this, O young ambition, all mortal greatness is but disease. But as yet we have not to do with such an one but with quite another, and still a man who, if indeed peculiar, it only results again from another phase of the Quaker, modified by individual circumstances. Like Captain Peleg, Captain Bildad was a well-to-do retired whaleman. But unlike Captain Peleg, who cared not a rush for what are called serious things, and indeed deemed those self-same serious things the veriest of all trifles, Captain Bildad had not only been originally educated according to the strictest sect of Nantucket Quakerism, but all his subsequent ocean life, and the sight of many unclad lovely island creatures round the horn, all that had not moved this native-born Quaker one single jot, had not so much as altered one angle of his vest. Still, for all this immutableness, was there some lack of common consistency about worthy Captain Bildad. Though refusing, from conscientious scruples, to bear arms against land invaders, yet himself had illimitably invaded the Atlantic and Pacific, and though a sworn foe to human bloodshed, yet he had, in his straight-bodied coat, spilled turns upon turns of leviathan gore. How now, in the contemplative evening of his days, the pious Bildad reconciled these things in the reminiscence? I do not know, but... It did not seem to concern him much, and very probably he had long since come to the sage and sensible conclusion that a man's religion is one thing, and this practical world quite another. This world pays dividends. Rising from a little cabin boy in short clothes of the drabbest drab, to a harpooner in a broad, shad-bellied waistcoat, from that becoming a boat-header, chief mate, and a captain, and finally a shipowner, Bildad, as I hinted before, had concluded his adventurous career by wholly retiring from active life at the goodly age of sixty and dedicating his remaining days to the quiet receiving of his well-earned income. Now, Bildad, I am sorry to say, had the reputation of being an incorrigible old hunks, and in his seagoing days a bitter, hard taskmaster. They told me in Nantucket, though it certainly seems a curious story, that when he sailed the old Cattegat whalemen, his crew, upon arriving home, were mostly all carried ashore to the hospital, sore exhausted and worn out. For a pious man, especially for a Quaker, he was certainly rather hard-hearted, to say the least. 
He never used to swear, though, at his men, they said, but somehow he got an inordinate quantity of cruel, unmitigated hard work out of them. When Bildad was a chief mate, to have his drab-colored eye intently looking at you made you feel completely nervous, till you could clutch something, a hammer or a marlin spike, and go to work like mad, or at something or other, never mind what. Indolence and idleness perished before him. His own person was the exact embodiment of his utilitarian character. On his long, gaunt body, he carried no spare flesh, no superfluous beard, his chin having a soft, economical nap to it, like the worn nap of his broad-brimmed hat. Such, then, was the person that I saw seated on the transom when I followed Captain Peleg down into the cabin. The space between the decks was small, and there, bolt upright, sat old Bildad, who always sat so, and never leaned and this to save his coattails. His broad brim was placed beside him, his legs were stiffly crossed, his drab vesture was buttoned up to his chin, and spectacles on nose, he seemed absorbed in reading from a ponderous volume. Bildad, cried Captain Peleg, at it again, Bildad, eh? You've been studying those scriptures now for the last thirty years, to my knowledge. How far you got, Bildad? As if long habituated to such profane talk from his old shipmate, Bildad, without noticing his present irreverence, quietly glanced up, and, seeing me, glanced again inquiringly towards Peleg. "'He says he's our man, Bildad,' said Peleg. "'He wants to ship.' "'Dost he?' said Bildad in a hollow tone, and turning round to me. "'I dost,' I said unconsciously. He was so intense a Quaker. "'What do you think of him, Bildad?' said Peleg. "'He'll do,' said Bildad, eyeing me, and then went on spelling away in his book in a mumbling tone quite audible. I thought him the queerest old Quaker I ever saw, especially as Peleg, his friend and old shipmate, seemed such a blusterer. But I said nothing, only looking round me sharply. Peleg now threw open a chest, and drawing forth the ship's articles, placed a pen and ink before him, and seated himself at a little table. I began to think it was high time to settle with myself at what terms I would be willing to engage for the voyage. I was already aware that in the whaling business they paid no wages, but all hands, including the captain, received certain shares of the profits called lays, and that these lays were proportioned to the degree of importance pertaining to the respective duties of the ship's company. I was also aware that being a green hand at whaling, my own lay would not be very large, but considering that I was used to the sea, could steer a ship, splice a rope, and all that, I made no doubt that from all I had heard I should be offered at least the 275th lay, that is, the 275th part of the clear net proceeds of the voyage, whatever that might eventually amount to. And though the 275th lay was what they call a rather long lay, yet it was better than nothing, and if we had a lucky voyage, might pretty nearly pay for the clothing I would wear out on it, not to speak of my three years beef and board, for which I would not have to pay one stiver. It might be thought that this was a poor way to accumulate a princely fortune, and so it was a very poor way indeed, but I am one of those that never take on about princely fortunes, and am quite content if the world is ready to board and lodge me, while I am putting up at this grim sign of the thundercloud. Upon the whole, I thought that the 275th lay would be about the fair thing, but would not have been surprised had I been offered the 200th, considering it I was of a broad-shouldered make. But one thing, nevertheless, that made me a little distrustful about receiving a generous share of the profits was this. 
Ashore, I had heard something of both Captain Peleg and his unaccountable old crony Bildad. How they, being the principal proprietors of the Pequod, therefore the other and more inconsiderable and scattered owners, left nearly the whole management of the ship's affairs to these two. And I did not know by what stingy old Bildad might have a mighty deal to say about shipping hands, especially as I now found him on board the Pequod, quite at home there in the cabin and reading his Bible as if by his own fireside. Now while Peleg was vainly trying to mend a pen with his jackknife, old Bildad, to my no small surprise, considering that he was such an interested party in these proceedings, Bildad never heeded us, but went on mumbling to himself out of his book, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth. Well, Captain Bildad, interrupted Peleg, what do you say? What lay shall we give this young man? Thou knowest best, was the sepulchral reply. The seven hundredth and seventy-seventh wouldn't be too much, would it? Where moth and rust do corrupt, but lay. Lay indeed, thought I. Such a lay, the seven hundred and seventy-seventh. Well, old Bildad, you are determined that I, for one, shall not lay up many lays here below, where moth and rust do corrupt. It was an exceedingly long lay, that, indeed, and though from the magnitude of the figure it might at first deceive a landsman, yet the slightest consideration will show that though 777 is a pretty large number, yet, when you come to make a teenth of it, you will then see, I say, that the 777th part of the farthing is a good deal less than 777 gold doubloons, and so I thought at the time. Why blast your eyes, Bildad, cried Peleg. Thou dost not want to swindle this young man. He must have more than that. Seven hundred and seventy-seventh, again said Bildad, without lifting his eyes, and then went on mumbling, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I'm going to put you down for three hundredth, said Peleg. Do you hear that, Bildad? The three hundredth lay, I say. Bildad laid down his book, and turning solemnly towards him, said, Captain Peleg, thou hast a generous heart, but thou must consider the duty thou owest to the other owners of this ship, widows and orphans, many of them, and that if you were too abundantly reward the labors of this young man, we may be taking bread from those widows and those orphans. The seven hundred and seventy-seventh lay, Captain Peleg. Thou Bildad, roared Peleg, starting up and clattering about the cabin. Blast ye, Captain Bildad, if I had followed the advice in those matters, I would afore now had a conscience to lug about the world be heavy enough to founder the largest ship that ever sailed round Cape Horn. Captain Peleg, said Bildad steadily, thy conscience may be drawing ten inches of water or ten fathoms, I can't tell. But as thou art still an impenitent man, Captain Peleg, I greatly fear lest thy conscience be but a leaky one, and will in the end sink thee foundering down to the fiery pit, Captain Peleg. Fiery pit! Fiery pit! Ye insult me, man! Past all natural bearing, ye insult me! It's an all-fired outrage to tell any human creature that he's bound to hell! Flukes and flames, Bildad! Say that again to me, and start my soul bolts! But I'll, I'll, yes, I'll swallow a live goat with all his hair and horns on! Out of the cabin, ye canting, drab-colored son of a wooden gun, and straight wake with ye! 
As he thundered out this, he made a rush at Bildad, but with a marvelous oblique sliding celerity, Bildad for that time eluded him. Alarmed at this terrible outburst between the two principal and responsible owners of the ship, and feeling myself half a mind to give up all idea of sailing in a vessel so questionably owned and temporarily commanded, I stepped aside from the door to give egress to Bildad, whom I made no doubt was all eagerness to vanish from before the awakened wrath of Peleg. But to my astonishment, he sat down again on the transom very quietly, and seemed to have not the slightest intention of withdrawing. He seemed quite used to impenitent Peleg and his ways. As for Peleg, after letting off his rage, as he had, there seemed no more left in him, and he too sat down like a lamb, though he twitched a little as if still nervously agitated. Whew! he whistled at last. The squall's gone off to leeward, I think. Bildad, thou used to be good at sharpening a lance. Mend that pen, will ye? My jackknife here needs a grindstone. That's he. Thank ye, Bildad. Now then, my young man, Ishmael's thy name, didn't ye say? Well then, down ye go there, Ishmael, for a three hundredth lay. Captain Peleg, said I, I have a friend with me who wants to ship too. Shall I bring him down tomorrow? To be sure, said Peleg. Fetch him along, and we'll look at him. What lay does he want? groaned Bildad, glancing up from the book in which he had again been burying himself. Oh, never thee mind about that, Bildad, said Peleg. Has he ever whaled at any? Turning to me, killed more whales than I can count, Captain Peleg. Well, bring him along then. And after signing the papers, off I went. Nothing doubting that I had done a good morning's work, and that the Pequod was the identical ship that Yojo had provided to carry Queequeg and me round the Cape. But I had not proceeded far when I began to bethink me that the captain with whom I was to sail yet remained unseen by me, though, indeed, in many cases a whaleship will be completely fitted out and receive all crew on board ere the captain makes himself visible by arriving to take command. For sometimes these voyages are so prolonged, and the shore intervals at home so exceedingly brief, that if the captain have a family, or any absorbing concernment of that sort, he does not trouble himself much about his ship in port but leaves her to the owners till all is ready for sea. However, it is always as well to have a look at him before irrevocably committing herself into his hands. Turning back, I accosted Captain Peleg, inquiring where Captain Ahab was to be found. And what dost thou want of Captain Ahab? It's all right enough, thou art shipped. Yes, but I should like to see him. But I don't think thou wilt be able to at present. I don't know exactly what's the matter with him, but he keeps close inside his house, a sort of sick, and yet he don't look so. In fact, he ain't sick. But no, he isn't well enough either. And how, young man, he won't always see me, so I don't suppose he will thee. He's a queer man, Captain Ahab, so some think, but a good one. Oh, thou'lt like him well enough. No fear, no fear. He's a grand, ungodly, godlike man, Captain Ahab. Doesn't speak much, but when he does speak, then you may well listen. Mark ye, be forewarned. Ahab's above the common. Ahab's been in colleges. As well as mung the cannibals, been used to deeper wonders than the waves, fixed his fiery lance in mightier stranger foes than whales. His lance, eh? the keenest and the surest that out of all our isle. Oh, he ain't Captain Bildad, no. And he ain't Captain Peleg. He's Ahab, boy. And Ahab of old, thou knowest, was a crowned king.
and a very vile one. When that wicked king was slain, the dogs, did they not lick his blood? Come hither to me, hither, hither, said Peleg, with a significance in his eye that almost startled me. Look ye, lad, never say that on board the Pequod. Never say it anywhere. Captain Ahab did not name himself. "'Twas a foolish, ignorant whim of his crazy widowed mother "'who died when he was only a twelve-month-old. "'And yet the old squaw, Tistig, at Gayhead, "'said that the name would somehow prove prophetic, "'and perhaps other fools like her may tell thee the same. "'I wish to warn thee, it's a lie. "'I know Captain Ahab well. "'I've sailed with him as mate many years ago. "'I know what he is. "'A good man, not a pious.' good man, like Bildad, but a swearing good one. Someone like me, only there's a good deal more of him. Aye, aye, I know he was never very jolly, and I know that on the passage home he was a little out of his mind for a spell, but it was his sharp shooting pains and his bleeding stump that brought that about, as anyone might see. I know, too, that ever since he lost his leg last voyage by that accursed whale, he's been a kind of moody." desperate moody and savage sometimes but that will all pass off and once for all let me tell ye thee and assure thee young man it's better to sail with a bloody good captain than a laughing bad one so goodbye to thee and wrong not captain ahab because he happens to have a wicked name besides my boy he has a wife not three voyages wedded a sweet resigned girl think of that by that sweet girl, that old man has a child. Hold ye then, there can be any utter hopeless harm in Ahab? No, no, my lad. Stricken, blasted, if he be, Ahab has his humanities. As I walked away, I was full of thoughtfulness. What had been incidentally revealed to me of Captain Ahab filled me with a certain wild vagueness of painfulness concerning him. And somehow, at the time, I felt a sympathy and a sorrow for him. But for I didn't know what, unless it was the cruel loss of his leg, and yet I also felt a strange awe of him, but that sort of awe which I cannot at all describe was not exactly awe, I don't know what it was. But I felt it, and it did not disincline me towards him, though I felt impatience at what seemed like mystery in him, so imperfectly as he was known to me then. However, my thoughts were at length carried in other directions, so that for the present, Dark Ahab slipped my mind. Chapter 17. The Ramadan. As Queequeg's Ramadan, or fasting and humiliation, was to continue all day, I did not choose to disturb him till towards nightfall. For I cherish the greatest respect toward everyone's religious obligations, never mind how comical, and should not find it in my heart to undervalue even a congregation of ants worshipping a toadstool, or those other creatures in certain parts of our earth who, with a degree of footmanism quite unprecedented in other planets, bow down before the torso of a deceased landed proprietor merely on account of the inordinate possessions yet owned and rented in his name. I say, we good Presbyterian Christians should be charitable in these things, and not fancy ourselves so vastly superior to other mortals, pagans and what not, because of their half-crazy conceits on these subjects. There was Queequeg, now certainly entertaining the most absurd notions about Yojo and his Ramadan, but what of that? Queequeg thought he knew what he was about, I suppose. He seemed to be content, and there let him rest. 
All our arguing with him would not avail. Let him be, I say, and heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly needing mending. Towards evening, when I felt assured that all his performances and rituals must be over, I went up to his room and knocked on the door, but no answer. I tried to open it, but it was fastened inside. Queequeg, said I softly through the keyhole, all silent. I say, Queequeg, why don't you speak? It's I, Ishmael. But all remained still as before. I began to grow alarmed. I had allowed him such an abundant time. I thought he might have had an apoplectic fit. I looked through the keyhole, but the door opening into an odd corner of the room, the keyhole prospect was but a crooked and sinister one. I could only see part of the footboard of the bed and a line of the wall, but nothing more. I was surprised to behold, resting against the wall, the wooden shaft of Queequeg's harpoon, which the landlady the evening previous had taken from him before our mounting to the chamber. That's strange, thought I. But, at any rate, since the harpoon stands yonder, and he seldom or never goes abroad without it, therefore he must be inside here, and no possible mistake. Queequeg! Queequeg! All still. Something must have happened. Apoplexy! I tried to burst open the door, but it stubbornly resisted. Running downstairs, I quickly stated my suspicions to the first person I met, the chambermaid. La, la! she cried. I thought something must be the matter. I went to make the bed after breakfast and the door was locked and not a mouse to be heard and it's been just so silent ever since. But I thought maybe you had both gone off and locked your baggage in for safekeeping. La la! Madam! Mistress! Murder! Mrs. Husby! Apoplexy! And with these cries she ran towards the kitchen. I followed. Mrs. Hussey soon appeared with a mustard pot in one hand and a vinegar cruet in the other, having just broken away from the op occupation of attending to the casters, and scolding her little black boy meantime. Woodhouse, cried I, which way to it? Run, for God's sake, and fetch something to pry open the door. The axe, the axe, he's had a stroke, depend upon it. And so saying, I was unmethodically rushing up the stairs, again empty-handed, when Mrs. Hussey interposed the mustard pot and vinegar cruet, and the entire caster of her countenance. What's the matter with you, young man? Get the axe, for God's sake, run for the doctor, someone, while I pry it open. Look here, said the landlady, quickly putting down the vinegar cruet so as to have one hand free. Look here, are you talking about prying open one of my doors? And with that, she seized my arm. What's the matter with you? What's the matter with your shipmate? In as calm but rapid a manner as possible, I gave her to understand the whole case. Unconsciously clapping the vinegar cruet to one side of her nose, she ruminated for an instant, then exclaimed, No! I haven't seen it since I put it there. Running to the little closet under the landing of the stairs, she glanced in and, returning, told me that Queequeg's harpoon was missing. He's killed himself, she cried. It's unfortunate Sig's done all over again. There goes another counterpane. God pity this poor mother. It will be the ruin of my house. Has the poor lad a sister? Where's that girl? There, Betty, go to Snarls the painter and tell him to paint me a sign with no suicides permitted here and no smoking in the parlor. Might as well kill both birds at once. Kill? The Lord be merciful to his ghost. What's that noise there? You, young man, avast there. And running up after me, she caught me as I was again trying to force open the door. I don't allow it. I won't have my premises spoiled. Go for the locksmith. There's one about a mile from here, but avast putting her hand in her side pocket. Here's a key that'll fit, I guess. Let's see. And with that, she turned it in the lock, but 
Alas, Queequeg's supplemental bolt remained withdraw- unwithdrawn within. Have to burst it open, said I, and was running down the entry a little for a good start when the landlady caught me, again vowing I should not break down her premises. But I tore from her and with a sudden bodily rush dashed my- dash myself full against the mark. With a prodigious noise, the door flew open and the, no- the knob slamming against the wall sent the plaster to the ceiling. And there, good heavens, there sat Queequeg, altogether cool and self-collected, right in the middle of the room, squatting on his hams and holding Yojo on top of his head. He looked neither one way nor the other, but sat like a carved image with scarce a sign of active life. Queequeg, said I, going up to him, Queequeg, what's the matter with you? He ain't been a-sittin' so all day, has he? said the landlady. But all we said, not a word could we draw out of him. I almost felt like pushing him over so as to change his position, for it was almost intolerable. It seemed so painfully and unnaturally constrained, especially as in all probability he had been so sitting for upwards of eight or ten hours, going to without his regular meals. Mrs. Hussey, said I, he's alive in all events, so leave us if you please, and I will see to this strange affair myself. Closing the door upon the landlady, I endeavored to prevail upon Queequeg to take a chair, but in vain. There he sat, and all he could do for all my polite arts and blandishments, he would not move a peg, nor say a single word, nor even look at me, nor notice my presence in the slightest way. I wonder, thought I, if this can possibly be a part of his Ramadan. Do they fast on their hams that way on his native island? It must be so. Yes, it's a part of his creed, I suppose. Well, then, let him rest. He'll get up sooner or later, no doubt. It can't last forever, thank God. And his Ramadan only comes once a year, so I don't believe it's very punctual then. I went down to supper. After sitting a long time listening to the long stories of some sailors who had just come from a plum-pudding voyage, as they called it, that is, a short whaling voyage in a schooner or a brig confined to the north of the line in the Atlantic Ocean only. After listening to these plum puddingers till nearly eleven o'clock, I went upstairs to go to bed, feeling quite sure that by this time Queequeg must certainly have brought his Ramadan to a termination. But no. There he was, just where I had left him. He had not stirred an inch. I began to grow vexed with him. It seemed so downright senseless and insane to be sitting there all day and half the night on his hams in a cold room holding up a piece of wood on his head. For heaven's sake, Queequeg, get up and shake yourself. Get up and have some supper. You'll starve. You'll kill yourself, Queequeg. But not a word did he reply. Despairing of him, therefore, I determined to go to bed and to sleep, and, no doubt, before a great while he would follow me, but previous to turning in I took my heavy bearskin jacket and threw it over him, as it promised to be a very cold night, and he had nothing but his ordinary round jacket on. For some time, do all I would, I could not get into the faintest doze. I had blown out the candle, and the mere thought of Queequeg, not four feet off, sitting there in that uneasy position, stark alone in the cold and dark, This made me feel really wretched. Think of it, sleeping all night in the same room with a wide-awake pagan on his hams in this dreary, unaccountable Ramadan. But somehow I dropped off at last and knew nothing more till break of day when, looking over the bedside, there squatted Queequeg as if he had been screwed down to the floor. But as soon as the first glimpse of sun entered the window, up he got with stiff and grating joints. But with a cheerful look, 
limping towards me where I lay, pressed his forehead against mine, and said his Ramadan was over. Now, as I before hinted, I have no objection to any person's religion, but in what it may, so long as that person does not kill or insult any other person, because that other person don't believe it also. But when a man's religion becomes really frantic, when it is a positive torment to him, and, in fine, makes this earth of ours an uncomfortable inn to lodge in, then I think it high time to take that individual aside and argue the point with him. And just so I did now with Queequeg. Queequeg, said I, get into bed now and lie and listen to me. I then went on, beginning with the rise and progress of the primitive religions and coming down to the various religions of the present time, during which time I labored to show Queequeg that all these Lents, Ramadans, and prolonged ham-squattings in cold, cheerless rooms were stark nonsense, bad for the health, useless for the soul, opposed, in short, to the obvious laws of hygiene and common sense. I told him, too, that being in other things such an extremely sensible and sagacious savage, it pained me, very badly pained me, to see him now so deplorably foolish about this ridiculous Ramadan of his. Besides, I argued I, fasting makes the body cave in, hence the spirit caves in, and all thoughts born of a fast must necessarily be half-starved. This is the reason why most dyspeptic religionists cherish such melancholy notions about their hereafters. In one word, Queequeg, said I, rather digressively, hell is an idea first born on an undigested apple dumpling and since then perpetuated through the hereditary dyspepsias nurtured by Ramadans. I then asked Queequeg whether he himself was ever troubled with dyspepsia, expressing the idea very plainly so that he could take it in. He said no, only upon one memorable occasion. It was after a great feast given by his father, the king on gaining of a great battle wherein fifty of the enemy had been killed by about two o'clock in the afternoon and all cooked and eaten that very evening. No more, Queequeg, said I, shuddering. That will do. For I knew the inferences without his further hinting them. I had seen a sailor who had visited that very island, and he told me that there was a custom, when a great battle had been gained there, to barbecue all the slain in the yard or garden of the victor, and then, one by one, they were placed in great wooden trenchers and garnished round like a plough, with breadfruit and coconuts, and with some parsley in their mouths, were sent round with the victor's compliments to all his friends, just as though these presents were so many Christmas turkeys. After all, I do not think that my remarks about religion made much impression upon Queequeg, because in the first place he somehow seemed dull of hearing on that important subject, unless considered from his own point of view, and in the second place he did not more than one-third understand me, couch my ideas simply as I would, and finally he no doubt thought he knew a good deal more about the true religion than I did. He looked at me with a sort of condescending concern and compassion as though he thought it a great pity that such a sensible young man should be so hopelessly lost to evangelical pagan piety. At last we rose and dressed, and Queequeg, taking a prodigiously hearty breakfast of chowders of all sorts so that the landlady should not make much profit by reason of the Ramadan, we sallied out to board the Pequod, sauntering along and picking our teeth with halibut bones. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Strangely's Moby Dick. If you have comments, questions, or would like to purchase the full audiobook of this project straight away, please send an email to saftp at tuta.io. 
That's S-A-F-T-P at tuta.io. This project was supported by a distinguished group of wonderful patrons. Visit patreon.com strangely to learn more about how you can aid my ongoing attempts to amuse, inform, and occasionally mystify. I'll see you all in two weeks.